Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. And welcome back to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Mark Roseman, AJ Carter, Ryan Sherman, Mike Capice with you this Sunday evening. If you're watching on the Sportscaster app, you will definitely see me decked out in my USA Olympic hockey jersey, uh, the captain's jersey, Micah Ruzioni, because joining us now is the man who captained the Boston University ice hockey team in his senior year, finished his college career as the third leading scorer in Terrier history. During his tenure, BU won four ECAC titles. He was best known as the captain of the 1980 Winter Olympics United States hockey team that defeated the Soviet Union in the famous Miracle on Ice game in which he scored the game-winning goal. He's the author with Neil Baudet of the national bestseller, The Making of a Miracle, the untold story of the captain of the gold medal winning 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. It is always a thrill and honor to welcome him back to Sports Talk New York, the one and only Mike Ruzioni. Welcome, Mike, and happy anniversary. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's a pretty special day for us. Yeah, I would say so, and, and I appreciate you taking that time of your, like, tremendously hectic schedule to be with us tonight. So first, congrats on the book. It is absolutely outstanding. Oh, thank you. I, uh, uh, with Neil. Neil and I spent a couple of years putting this together, and uh, I wanted to kind of touch on a lot of different parts of my life, not only as an athlete, but the life of my family and how I grew up. And, and I say it in the book, and I, and I wrote the book for one reason and one reason only. Uh, I have right now five grandkids, and I, I want my grandkids to know that uh, Papa's life doesn't, wasn't one game or one goal or two weeks. And it's so cool the way you lay it out. The book is dedicated to your parents, Helen and Eugene Jeep Aruzioni, who instilled in you the values of hard work, dedication, and family. You really bring us into your childhood and growing up in a three-family home in Winthrop, Mass., where some of the core values you know, were developed. What was some of the, the main things you took from living in that house with your extended family? Well, I think uh, yeah, you take responsibility, um, because everybody was responsible for the things that they needed to do in the house. I think you take uh, uh, a work ethic environment with you because we saw how hard our parents worked. Uh, my, my dad worked and my uncle and my uncle downstairs and my uncle upstairs. And, you know, work, work and values were a very important part of, of my life. And I think I, I saw that and I saw how my dad always said, if you work hard, good things will happen to you. And, and, and that's kind of has been my approach, not only uh, in sports, but in life. What I really loved about the book, for me, it, it kind of rang like it's a wonderful life. And, and, and the way I, I mean that is in the film, Angel, um, the Angel Clarence shows George Bailey a timeline, timeline in which he never existed. There are so many moments in your life which you could have put you on a different path. The first being your first and second pair of skates. So, so back then, a guy skating with pom-poms in figure skates probably left himself open to ridicule, I'm sure. But you used those skates anyway until your mom got you your first pair of skates in a pretty non-conventional way. Can you share how you got the first pair of skates that you owned and what the, the deal with those, the skates with the pom-poms were? Well, the skates with the pom-poms was because my parents weren't going to go out and buy me equipment and, and, you know, and play a sport that maybe I would say I don't like it, I don't want to play, it's cold, I'm not having any fun. And my parents would support you in everything you do, but you can never quit. And they weren't going to spend their hard-earned money and then, you know, 
I come home and say I don't like it. I'm not having any fun. So they they used to freeze the tennis courts down the street from where I lived, and my sister had these white figure skates that I fit into, and I went down the tennis courts and would try to skate or learn to skate, or, you know, fool around with my friends. And eventually my sister would come down, and I'd give her the skates, and I'd go home. Uh, well, my mom in those years, you could save S&H green stamps, and my mom saved up enough stamps, uh, and she said that's how she got me my first pair of skates. It's so cool. And for, you know, Ryan and Mike, you know, before the years right. where you got credit card points, right. you would go to a grocery store and you'd get these stamps and go home. You have to paste them in. Right, think, paste them of, in. Think of like Speedway, right. you know, but except you had to paste the, the stuff in a And book. I'm sure there were, I can only imagine how many books that, that cost your mom. So the way you get into Boston University is another one of those moments. As the referee in a summer league hockey game, a game in which you were pretty much a fill-in as a favor to some of your high school friends, plays an important role in your career. Can you tell our audience who that ref was and what that day meant to the course of your life? Well, you know, I, I, I wanted to go to the University of New Hampshire, and I was a baseball, football, hockey player, and I thought I could go to UNH and play all three sports up there. And, um, you know, the, the coaches liked me. Unfortunately, the hockey coach didn't like me. I didn't think I could play at that level and, and never offered me a scholarship. So I was going actually to Division II. Uh, Merrimack College at the time was now the Division One school, but they were Division Two at the time. And uh, I was all set to go to Merrimack. And then that summer, I got a phone call, a buddy of mine, and they were playing a game in the summer. I played baseball in the summer. I didn't really play any hockey in the summer. And he said, uh, we need some guys to play. Do you want to play? So I played in the game. And as it turned out, the referee of the game was a guy named Jack Parker. Now, I didn't know who Jack Parker was, but found out that he was the assistant coach at Boston University. And when the game was over, Jack Parker came up to me and Wanted to know where I, where I was going to school. I told him I was going to Merrimack College, and he said, well, we have a kid from Canada that decided not to come. Would you like to come to Boston University? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I think, I think that would be nice. I mean, you're, you're only one of the best schools in the country. So I went home and told my dad, and, and my dad said, what are you going to do? I said, I can, I can play there. I said, I know I can play there. I'm going to go to BU. And uh, I, I went to Boston University, and then I was playing just a little in the first few games. Uh, I was sent him in the fourth line, and uh, I think I had maybe a goal or an assist at this point. And then Jack, uh, Leon Abbott, the head coach, he got fired. And Jack Parker became the head coach. So I went from playing on the fourth line to playing, I think, on the second or third line and moved to left wing and uh, ended up leading the team in goal scoring my freshman year. So, uh, again, if I never played in that summer league game and if I had never met Jack Parker, I clearly wouldn't have been uh, you know, able to play on an Olympic team coming out of a, a Division II school. Here in New York, we know Jack Parker very well. Lots of um, Boston University players have made their way to the New York Rangers and have told us uh, you know, all about him. Interestingly enough, Jack Parker's first official act of his long and you know, amazing tenured college coaching career was getting you a pair of skates. Tell us more about the day that Jack took over for head coach Leon Abbott and what you did when you found out that Jack was now the head coach. Well, in those days, you know, you'd get skates. If you were on the varsity, you could get skates. And I hadn't really made the varsity, and I didn't have skates. And uh, Vic Stanfield was a teammate of mine. His brother Fred played in the NHL for the Bruins, and Fred had a uh, sporting goods store in Boston. And uh, my skates broke during the, the tryouts, and I had no skates. So he got me a pair. It was like $50. I, he got me a deal on a pair of high Jelenics. It was a red, it was red too, a red skate. And I had red ice skates, and then Leon got fired, and I went in and I knocked on Jack's door, and I said, Coach, uh, and I thought he thought maybe I was going to complain or say something, and 
uh, about you know what's going on with the program. Instead, I said, "Can I get a pair of skates now?" And he said, "You didn't get me." I said, "No," because I I didn't know if I was going to make the varsity and wasn't sure. And he said, "Well, you can you you can get skates." So I ended up getting a pair of uh, you know, he called a rep and came in and I got myself my first pair of Bauer ice skates. And that's Jack's first official uh, act as a coach. Uh, the book also sets the foundation of the U.S. hockey East-West mentality, uh, which impacted some of the most important games in your collegiate career. For those in our audience too young to remember the college landscape back then, can you tell us about the impact of the East-West bias and, and how it had an effect on the big games that you would play in? What was that? I didn't catch the end. Sorry. And what effect that East-West bias had in some of those big tournament games that uh, you were involved in? Well, you know, when I was at Boston University, it was an intense rivalry between the East and the West. You know, we had our rivals, you know, Boston College and Harvard, you know, ECAC games. But when it got to the NCAA tournament, that was trying to win a national championship. And you really didn't see a lot of the Western schools and the Western teams um, until you got to the tournament. So I remember my freshman year, we lost in overtime to Minnesota. Uh, in the first round of the Frozen Four and got knocked out. My second year, that was the year we got blown out by Michigan Tech, and they were really good that year. But, you know, that's two years in the Frozen Four. Now I get to my junior year, and we were, in my opinion, the best team in the country, and we're playing the University of Minnesota in the first round, and three minutes into the game was a bench-clearing brawl. I mean, the police came on the ice. It was crazy. Uh, both teams actually should have been thrown out of the tournament because you can't fight. Uh, we ended up losing our, our leading goal scorer, and we ended up losing the game, uh, I think it was 3-2 or 4-3. to three. And, you know, we always accused Herb Brooks of starting that fight. And after playing under Herb, I've said this before, I'm convinced he started that fight. <laughs> you know, that was, his intention was they were going to just physically try to go after us. And they, it, it, it worked. Uh, they won the game. And uh, so I get knocked out of the tournament the, the third year in a row. Then my senior year, again, we're in the Frozen Four, and we lose to uh, Michigan by a goal on a very controversial, questionable uh, call at the end of the game. Um, we were going to pull the goalie. Actually, Jimmy Craig was the goalie. And uh, put an extra skater out there, and the referee called a penalty on us for too many men on the ice, which was absolutely ridiculous. And uh, we lose that game and have four Final Fours and never winning it. So uh, it's kind of a frustrating part of my life. I think I remember my defeats more than my victories. And... Uh, that was four tough years, and I graduate, and then BU wins the national championship the next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. Two two things, like when you know, obviously it's forty, and this is more than forty years because this is your college career. You know, some of the names that pop up, like in that you know the second year, uh, the guy who slashed it, and then there was a retaliation penalty. Your best scorer goes off. The guy who slashed a minute eight into the game is none other than New York Ranger announcer Joe Micheletti, who you know played for Herb. So it, it's so cool when you start re- remembering these names and hearing them again, but what was interesting was, with all that you accomplished, and you just alluded to it right now, with all that you accomplished in your college career, four straight ECAC titles, one bean pot, Final Four all four years, 75-76 World Championship, a goal against Tretiak, you mentioned winning that national, not winning a national title, still haunts you to this day. Why is that? I mean, that's a, a tremendous body of work right there, and I get that the ultimate goal is to win that championship. But with everything that you've accomplished in your life, why do you still remember those defeats more than everything that I just laid out there? Because I, they just they eat at you. Uh, you know, Jack Parker always said that a, a true champion team is, you know, a t- team that wins a national championship. And, and that's how he relates to BU teams that he's coached. And we've had an awful lot of really good teams. But in order to be a great team, you've got to win a national championship. And I think 
you know, you go to college, that's that's your goal. When you play for Boston University, you know, you want to win the beanpot, you want to win the regular season, you want to win the playoffs, and then you want to win a national championship. And, you know, four years I was able to be a part of many victories, uh, but those four defeats are still, you know, kind of gnaw at me because uh, I don't have that. Uh, uh, I've got a uh, NCAA ring uh, because I was an assistant coach uh, the year we won the national championship. So I, I have an NCAA ring from from being an assistant coach, but not one from being a player. And I'd, I'd rather have one for, from being a player. <laughs> so John Ferguson actually noticed you at a holiday, a holiday tournament at Madison Square Garden, a tournament in which you were named the MVP. Um, and they, the Rangers claimed you as an undrafted free agent, giving the Rangers your rights after you completed college. Five years after being a fill-in at a rink with your high school buddies, you report to New York Rangers training camp, where Phil Esposito actually offered you some advice. Do you remember what Espo told you? Yeah, Phil, Phil and I got, he was great because I was the Italian guy and I'm flying around the ice and I'm trying to make the team. And he just said, Mikey, just slow down because, uh, this team's pretty well set right now. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I got no chance here. Uh, but you know, obviously, you know, Phil, I don't know if he was kidding me or if he was serious, but that's what he said. And, uh, he became a good friend many, many years, uh, and still a very good friend, but. Yeah, it kind of set me back a little by saying, look, we're pretty well set here. And actually, he was right, uh, because that's when they called me in and said, you know, we have enough players under contract, and we're not going to sign any new players. So that's when they sent me to Toledo, uh, which was an affiliate of the Rangers, but I never had an NHL contract. My contract was with the Toledo Gold Diggers. Which is interesting, because it's another one of those George Bailey moments. Back then, you were still considered to be an amateur to qualify for the Olympics. You had to have played less than 10 games. Your agent, your agent Bob Murray, gets a call from Herb Brooks alerting him to the fact that you're still eligible for the Olympics, which you did not even dream of at that point. At that point, you had only played nine games, so you, you were one game away from losing your eligibility. Um, but there were also stories out there that you had an attitude and you were a troublemaker and a bad liver. Um, you took matters into your own hands and drove to Olympic Stadium where Herb's team was playing, and after the game you had a talk with him. How did that go, and why was it so important for you to go and meet face-to-face with Herb? Well, because whoever said it, and actually I, I know who said it. Uh, I didn't bring that out in the book. There's no reason to you know, throw anybody under the bus. Uh, but again, it was uh, somebody from out west and made a comment. Or, and I'd heard about it through Billy Cleary, who was the coach at Harvard. Because when my name was brought up in the meeting of players to bring to the festival, this is what was said. And Billy Cleary said, yes, that's not true. I've, I've known this kid. I've coached against him. Uh, and, and when I heard the story from Billy Cleary through my agent, I just said, yeah, i got to go talk to her because I, this, this is not true. This has never been any, any, any close to any part of my reputation as a, as a person or, or as an athlete. So I drove to, to uh, Detroit. I was playing in Toledo. Uh, and met with Herb, and that's when I heard the, the story. I said, Mr. Brooks, and that's when he said, my, my father's Mr. Brooks, I'm Herb. I said, Herb, I'm Mike Rizzioni. He goes, no, I know who you are. And I said, I want to clear the air on something. And he listened. He said, no problem. Don't worry about it. I look forward to having you come out and try out the Olympic team. And that's, that's how that story was kind of uh, out there. Yes, that's something that I, I did not know about, and I find that fascinating in the book. The 1979 National Sports Festival is where the foundation of the U.S. hockey team was built. 2,300 athletes for 31 sports, 68 for hockey. What are your lasting memories of that festival, heading into that banquet room at the end of it to see who made the Olympic roster after your Great Lakes team had won the gold against Minnesota? You had five goals. You tied for most points in that festival with Kenny Morrow. What what was your takeaway and your your greatest memory walking into that banquet room waiting to hear the roster? 
Well, uh, you know, my, my takeaway was we had won the festival. We won a gold medal in the Olympic Festival, and we were an at-large team, a team that just they put together from different players because the East had a, a lot of the Eastern players, and for whatever reason, the East didn't take me. Um, and they put me on this Great Lakes team, and I went there thinking, oh, I'm on a team that I, I don't really know anybody, uh, and here we are, and we go out and, and win the whole thing. So I think that might have, I thought as I'm going into the, you know, the decisions of who's going to make the team, a pretty big feather in my cap because we had won the tournament. I was captain of the, I was tied to the leading scorer in the tournament, and I, and I thought it, uh, you know, gave me a real good chance. So, but you you always go into those things and never knowing. And uh, at the time, like I said, prior prior to 1980, if you were an Eastern player, there was Eastern coach. If it was if it was Eastern coaches, Eastern players, Western coach, Western players. And I was concerned that maybe you know there were too many uh, Western guys that were going to be on that team, and I wasn't going to get a fair chance. But Clearly, I did. <laughs> and interesting, you really had no time to savor the moment of being chosen because for that team, as basically the first team meeting was held right after that. What did Herb say to you guys afterwards? And what were guys, you know, saying about him amongst themselves when you guys all realized you made the team? Obviously, you start talking about your coach. What was the initial feeling amongst the players about Herb? Well, not you know, almost every one of them played under Herb. Yeah. Uh, I think there were ten kids that played at the University of Minnesota. And- I think there were 12 or 13 kids on the team from Minnesota. So, you know, Herb, Herb knew, knew all the players. He really didn't know us that well. You know, me, Jack, uh, the Boston guys, there was Jack O'Callaghan, Dave Silk, myself, Ralph Cox, and Jack Hughes. Uh, and then there was, you know, two Wisconsin guys, uh, two Michigan guys. Um, and, and the rest were, were uh, from, from Minnesota. So your concern was, you know, let's get to know these guys. Let's see who they, what they're all about and, what kind of people they are, because like I said, we didn't know them other than when we played against them, but you know, one thing about ice hockey is you, you learn right away how important your teammates are, and we had a bond and a friendship uh, that, that we nurtured right from the beginning, and even to this day, you know, we're together up here in, in, in Las Vegas uh, over the weekend celebrating the 40th anniversary, and we're just having a blast seeing each other again and having some fun together as a, as a team, so you know, we didn't really talk that much about Herb. Uh, it was more at the beginning getting to know each other, uh, you know, getting to know who Kenny Morrow was, getting to know who Mark Wells was, you know, who, what's Davey Christian like, what's Neil Broughton like, Billy Baker, guys that we didn't know. So that, that was the, the, you know, the first few weeks to get, get to know each other, and Herb just kind of stayed away. Yeah. You know, anyone who's seen the movie Miracle is well aware of the night in Norway during the exhibition schedule leading up to the Olympics where you guys tied Norway team with a pretty lackluster effort in Herb's eyes. He was so incensed, he, you know, guys kept you on the ice after the game doing those Herbies, an exhausting conditioning drill. Even after the arena manager turned off the lights, kept you guys skating. Obviously, anyone that's seen that movie knows that. But what people might not know, and I didn't know that until I read the book, was that that drill also known as suicides, mountain climbers, gassers, as you guys called them, Herbies, were the way you guys ended every practice. And Herb had a specific reason for that, and he, he told you why the, these conditioning drills were important. What was that? Well, I think, he, he, again, he was a, you know, a, a coach that demanded uh, you guys be in great shape. Uh, and, and we had to win. You know, he wanted us to be able to win games in, third, in the third period. He wanted us to wear teams down with our with our youth and our speed. And it's, it's amazing when I look back at it now, obviously 40 years later, and this is a statistic that somebody gave me a few weeks ago, and I never even knew this, but in the, in the Olympic Games in Lake Placid, in the third period of every game, we outscored our opponents 16-3. to I mean, that's an incredible statistic, and that speaks volumes to the hard work and the skating that we did throughout the season. We wore teams down in the third period. And Herb uh, 
uh, you know, pushed us to do that, uh, you know, all year long. And when I talked to my teammates after the Olympic Games and wherever, you know, we'd sit around and talk, and we hardly ever, ever talk about the Olympics. As a matter of fact, we never do. But one of the things we talked about was each one of those guys that was by far the best shape they had ever been in their life, uh, from high school to college to the NHL. Uh, that six-month period was the thing that uh, he pushed us and skated us and the, the, the shape that we were in, and, and our speed was absolutely incredible. Tell our audience a little bit about November 2nd, 1979. It's a day you're elected captain in what the players referred to as a Russian election, which is kind of ironic reading that today, actually. But, but tell us about that. Well, there was a player vote, um, but there's no way. And, and again, it was never discussed because it wasn't a big deal to me. Um, I just think there's no, no way, you know, 14 Minnesota guys are going to vote for a guy from Boston. Uh, I even asked Jack O'Callaghan who he voted for, and he said he didn't vote for me because he didn't think I was going to make the team. And, you know, Jack's a Boston guy. So uh, it, it wasn't a big deal. It was nice. Um, I take great pride in that. But, uh, you know, we had a team of leaders, a team of captains. Jack O'Callaghan was a two-time captain at Boston University. Mark Johnson and Bobby Sudo were captains at Wisconsin. Kenny Morrow and Mark Wells were captains at Bowling Green. Uh, Harrington and Pavlos were captains at Minnesota Duluth. You know, Christian Harrington, I mean, Christian Ramsey, uh, Broughton were captains of their high school teams. So, Christoph, uh, captain, Verkota, captain. So, the, the whole team of, of guys in that locker room were leaders and captains. So, the important thing for me as captain was just to be who I am and uh, be the person that I am and not try to change and do anything differently. But... There was never any, you know, walking around going, ho, 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 I'm the captain here, you got to do this, this, and this. <coughs> you know, it's interesting also in the book because it's so clear that Herb had a purpose for everything, including the 61-game schedule uh, and the opponents. All of the, the opponents were chosen for a particular reason. Last game was MSG against the Russians. You set the tone for what was going on in the country at the time in the book beautifully, and it was really part of the story that when I try to explain why this team meant so much to people like me, if they were never around and didn't live in that era, it's hard for them to comprehend all that you detailed, the Cold War, the hostages in Iran, the horrible economy, inflation out of control, gas prices. Just It was really a depressed time in our nation. As a team, and you guys were young, and you were kind of insulated because you were really just focused on playing hockey, did you have a sense of you know, it building and what you guys actually meant to the nation at that time? No, I wish I could tell you we did, but we had no idea. Uh, we were just playing. Uh, it was a hockey game to us. Uh, obviously, we realized after that it was far greater than a hockey game, but yeah. we went into the Olympics with the hope of getting to the medal round. That was our goal. And once we got to the medal round, the next goal was to try to win a gold medal. And uh, we were in a little village in Lake Placid. We weren't allowed to talk to the media. We didn't know people were writing about us, talking about us, saying anything about us, playing hockey games. And... Uh, until after the Olympic Games that we realized that this thing was far greater than that. You know, going into the exhibition um, prior to the Olympics, the Russian had four straight Olympic golds. They hadn't lost an Olympic game in 12 years. And again, it seems Herb knew all along why he wanted that as the last game prior to the Olympics. You guys lost 10-3, to but Herb's message in the locker room was not what you expected at all. What did Herb say to you after that loss? Well, we 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 round and we were losing. I think six to nothing after the first period. And I remember him just harping on, if we ever get a play him again, remember how you played in the second and third period when we kind of at least woke up and and kind of played a little better and maybe maybe challenged them a little more. Uh, unless they took their foot off the gas too, who knows? But 
you know, it, it, he turned a negative into a positive. Instead of, you know, berating us and telling us how bad we were, uh, he told us how well we played at the end. And, again, we weren't even thinking about the Soviets. Uh, they were in the other division. That, that, that game was the last game of a long season. Uh, I think that game, we had one foot in, in the Madison Square Garden rink and one foot in the Lake Placid rink trying to, you know, get out of, get out of New York as quickly as we can in, in Madison Square Garden, not get hurt, and get to the Olympic Games. So, uh it was a great, you know, game for us to play. I think Herb was brilliant by putting that game in there. Um, but like I said, I think the second time was a totally different team, a totally different mindset. And uh, like I said also, we, we never, ever talked about that 10-3 to 3 game again. Well, how much, though, when you're facing the Russians again, and it's the semifinal game, and how much did that weigh on you, the, the, the loss in the Garden? And you also said... You know, people said this is the game that people remember. They should remember actually the final game against Finland. Why do you think this game overshadows the Finland game that won you the gold medal? Well, I think it was because I think it was because of the the political climate that we were dealing with in this country. Um, you know, the threat of a Cold War. Uh, Soviets had invaded in Afghanistan. So that, again, that wasn't what we were looking at, but that's what the country was looking at. And I think that's why they meant that, you know thought the game was so big and. Uh, you know, we were such a huge underdog that game. Heck, when we played Finland, we, we probably were favorite in that game. Uh, maybe one of the only games, those two games that we might have been favored in the whole Olympic game. So, you know, it was a little, a little different mindset uh, for us as a team to go into the Finland game because we didn't go to the Olympics, like I said, to win one game. We, we went to hope and dreams of winning it all. So the, the Finnish game was the biggest game we'd play. Heck, if we lose to Finland and don't win the medal, who cares about the Soviet game? So how, how much did, did Herb Brooks talk about that don't have a letdown after no. winning the Russian game. <laughs> and clean up exactly what he said to yeah. you guys. Well, we we beat the Soviets on Friday night. We show up at the rink Saturday morning for practice, and we're all laughing and joking and signing pictures and pucks, and Herb just flipped out. Uh, he's just screaming and yelling at us, who do you guys think you are? You don't have enough talent to win. And I'm like, why is he so you know pissed off? We just beat the Soviets. But then we went out and probably had one of the hardest practices we had all year. I mean, our butts off that morning, and again, I think he needed to get us down to earth, get those energy, that energy out of us, get that excitement out of us, and get us ready to play on Sunday. And you know, I've always said we were ready to play Sunday. He didn't have to <laughs> have to skate us that hot on Saturday, but you know, he got his point across. So it's been well documented, but what happened in that second to third period, the mindset that changed when they pulled their goaltender, and was that was that a clear sign to you that you guys had made a chink in the armor? No, uh, you know, that, again, that wasn't discussed with us. Uh, you know, you took out uh, uh, a and put in Michigan. Michigan was the goalie when the NHL All-Stars lost 6 to nothing to the Soviets. So, you know, I've always said that's like taking out Brodeur and putting in Patrick Roy. Uh, <laughs> you know, their backup goalie was pretty good. But, again, we were never concerned about what other teams were doing. If you see any highlights of the games, you'll hear Herb say all the time, play your game, play your game. We weren't concerned about what the Soviets were doing. Uh, we needed to do the things that we had been doing throughout the Olympic Games, play the way we've been playing. You know, if we got behind a few goals, then maybe we would have had to change our strategy. But the way the game was going, you know, down a goal, that was fine. And we kept after them, kept playing the way we were playing and not worrying about what they were doing. We just needed to do what we needed to do. You know, it's interesting because throughout the book, there's a, a lot of Herb's quotes. One of them was game two against the Czechoslovakians, and Herb tells the team not to be in awe of those guys, so they've got seven guys from the 76 Olympics, so they have an average age of 26, so they have some guys 32 years old. So he said, 
what any man, he says, any man can shoot a tiger, but a man of character will walk up to the tiger, spit in his eye, and then pull the trigger. At the end of the game, you had that kind of moment with Anton Stastny. Do you remember, recall the one thing that you said to him that's actually suitable for air during that heated confrontation between the two of you when you guys got that win? I, I don't remember right now. I, I look up at the scoreboard. Yeah, I, I yep. pointed up at the scoreboard. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah. To, that to me is that essence of, of that Herb quote. It's like you, you spit in his eye before you pull the trigger for sure. Um, right. The other one, um, which, you know, um, in the movie is captured so well, um, where, you know, he basically says, you were born to be here. You were born to be a player. You were meant to be here. This moment is yours. Now, I have to imagine every player sitting there hearing what Herb was saying. You had flashbacks. Like for you, reading the book, I can only imagine that it's, you know, those tennis courts with the pom-pom, that game, you know, where Jack Parker is at. You know, you were born to be there. And not only that, you get the game-winning goal. What are some of the things that are going through your mind when Herb's talking to you guys about that this was your moment, you were born to be there? Well, I just think you look at, all, all the time and effort and work and sacrifices that people put in to give me the opportunity to be there, whether it was my coaches, my parents, my aunts, uncles, cousins, friends. Um, I just think that when you clearly, you know, put everything together, um, maybe I was born to be a player and maybe I was meant to be there. It's, you know, kind of how I looked at it. And I think even you look at all my teammates, maybe throughout our careers, all our, you know, games that we played and shuffled in leagues that we played in and funneled throughout our career through high school to college. And eventually all of our guys were funneled onto that team for some reason. And uh, so we, you know, we, we had to be there as well as a team. So you mentioned before just a little bit about how you guys had gone about the town and were starting to sign pucks. Now, after you finally win the gold medal game, can you take us a little bit into what was going on in Lake Placid and what went on with your teammates? Well, Lake Placid was crazy because we couldn't go anywhere. I mean, people were, I mean, swarming you. So, you know, we just kind of stayed in that little cocoon, stayed in the village, uh, enjoyed the moment with my teammates, celebrated a little. But, you know, we had to get up the next morning at six o'clock to go to the White House. So there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of crazy stuff going on. Uh, I think we just enjoyed it. We just embraced it and enjoyed it. And uh, again, like I said, didn't know that was that big a deal until we got out into the country. Um, I look back at the uh, back to the Russian speech that Herb Brooks gave you. What was the overall feeling in that locker room going into that game? Well, I, you're excited, you're nervous, you're anxious, you're curious. I think, you know, I think you run the full gamut of emotions that you do when you play any big game. And again, was we had to realize that the bottom line. Uh, let's see if we get it back just to finish up the interview. So, for you know, it's just uh, for me. I, I mean, it's so hard to put into words what that actually meant. You know, it, it just it was so. The the country. I mean, for me as a kid, I remember I was nineteen eighty was twenty years old. It cost me like four dollars a gallon of gas to fill up. So as a kid, you were kind of restricted to where you could go. We didn't have hey, Mr. like the so all right. So, yeah, 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 we got disconnected. Hold on. A second. All right, we're gonna finish it up. So let me just. Okay. All right, Mike. Sorry so, about that. I, I know yeah, you're short I got, on. T- so, I had one question. You know, the bottom line for us is, it's still a hockey game. It's played on a you know sheet of ice that we played on, you know, for two weeks and played on for 
all our lives. And it, and you can't make it bigger than that. You know it's a big game. Clearly, you're not stupid. <laughs> but it's it's still a game that you've got to go out and, and play uh, that you've been playing since you were, you know, 8, 9, 10 years old. So the important thing for us was just to, you know, run the gamut of emotions you're going to have and play smart, be disciplined, try to stay out of the penalty box and, uh, you know, do do your job, play play the way that we've been playing throughout the game. So you can't make it too big. Uh, you just got to kind of keep it in, in place in front of you. The book captures the gold medal game perfectly, as it did with all the others, but you really capture the post-game celebration, a visit from the vice president, uh, a phone call from the president, which, in, it, it, incredibly, some of the players weren't even in the locker room because at that point the, the Olympic Committee had random drug testing, so Mark Pavlich wasn't even in that room. You guys also had to wait for the Sweden-Russia game for the medal ceremony, which is one of the most iconic moments in sports when you decide to invite all your teammates on that small podium, which it's a miracle that they all fit. Forget about the game. But did you have that in your mind before, or was this just something spontaneous? I mean, it's one of the most beautiful moments in all of Olympic sports. Yeah, I'm not that smart to think that <laughs> far in advance. And, you know, they told us how the ceremony is going to go. Each guy's going to get a mic, a medal. Mike, you'll be the last guy. After you get the medal, turn around, the anthem will be played. And that's kind of all they told me. And then after the anthem was played, I kind of looking at my teammates, and they were looking at me, kind of walking towards me, like, where, you know, where do we go next? And it was just a reaction to uh, to call him up, and uh, we all fit. I mean, I don't know if we all fit now, but we all fit. And, and the interesting thing was after the Olympics, after that Olympics, when they had the gold medals, the bronze and silver for ice hockey, it's a long platform where all the players stand um, together, which is the way it should be. It shouldn't be shouldn't be one person. So to follow Mark's It's a Wonderful Life theme, you've said that if it weren't for the game against the Soviets, if it weren't for the gold medal, how many of the players on the team who ended up playing in the NHL do you think would have played in the NHL? How much was that a difference in terms of validating American hockey in the eyes of the people who ran the National Hockey League? Well, I think the guys clearly would have been given an opportunity if we, if, even if we didn't win the medal because they were awfully good players, and I think anybody who watched that tournament could see the skill level of, of the guys that went on and played. I think it was 14 guys that played in the National Hockey League, some longer than others. But, uh, I mean, clearly it was pretty evident that uh, these guys could play the game and we're going to be given an opportunity. Mike, as always, thanks for taking out the time to be with us tonight. Uh, a great book allowing me to relive one of the greatest sports moments I have ever seen. Um, maybe one of the only ones that actually healed a country as well. So thanks so much for that. Where can people get a hold of this amazing book and keep up with all your appearances? Well, HarperCollins is the publisher. Uh, the book is in, um, you can go on Amazon uh, and buy it there. Uh, Barnes & Nobles, I believe, bookstore has them. Uh, somebody told me they saw it in the airport in Chicago the other day, so maybe now it's in airports. I, I really don't know. Uh, HarperCollins kind of deals with all that and, I, you know, I, I don't have any public signings planned uh, anywhere yet or anymore. I did one in New York and Long Island. I did yep. one in New Jersey. I did one in Boston. Uh, so uh, I guess that's how I would approach it right now is just go online and uh, and you can get it. All right, Mike, say hi to all the guys for me. Uh, you guys are still hanging out in Vegas. Uh, of all places, that, that's a strange one for me. Of all the places you guys could have celebrated, the I, I, well, I guess it actually is a good place to celebrate. So, But, but enjoy. Thanks so much, Mike. Well, really I will. And, 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 
and, and I will tell you, the Vegas Knights last night were absolutely spectacular in honoring us. Uh, what a first-class organization that is. Yeah, you know, I, I can't wait to see Craig. Craig's at a lot of the Ranger games up in the press level, and we, we uh, talk a lot, so I can't wait for him to tell me all about it. So thanks again, Mike. I really appreciate it. Okay, guys. Thank you. You got it. Mike Ruzioni, captain of the 1980 Olympic hockey team. All right, so we're going to do a little audible. Normally we would get Russ, and we're going to move it, Russ, uh, to the 8 o'clock hour, okay. and we'll do our other beat reports. So, again, as I was saying when he got disconnected, you know, it, it's so difficult. Like, you guys, um, and I shouldn't, I mean, every generation has its down periods. We were in what was called a malaise. It really was. Everyone well, it, was. It, it was a really tough yeah. year. And, it, and if you remember, there's a presidential election happened that year in which all the things were going on resulted in Jimmy Carter becoming a one term president. Because right. Ronald Reagan came along, a promise of something different. There was the hostage crisis. There was, you know, gas crisis, all sorts of different things, and the country needed something to lift its spirit. To rally around. So and it's interesting that A.J. mentions the Iran conflict. So yeah. now we have all these... Ca- this was way before all the cable news networks. So yeah. there was a program called Nightline, Ted Koppel, and every night was basically just... Well, they, it, Nightline started as right. 15 minutes to talk about the Iran right. hostage and, crisis. Every night to talk about what was going on with the, uh, the, the crisis. And then the Cold War was heating up, and then it, it was just... And Russia was an enemy. I mean, a big-time enemy. And then all of a sudden, these kids came out of nowhere playing in our own state, and the, the crowd goes crazy. Jim Craig, the goalie, after they you know, win the medal, drapes the American flag around himself, looks in the, the stands for his parent. It, it was, it was well, everything the fa- about it. The fact that it happened in the United States said something more to it. It happened at Lake Placid. I think right. it might not have had the same effect if it happened in Sapporo, if it happened right. you know, in France. The fact also happened in the United States, in the small town that hosted the Olympics once before, in the, in the, well, twice before in the 30s and 1960. And I have to tell you, like, I've, I've played baseball on City Field. I've you know, done a lot of like, unbelievable things. The most amazing thing I ever did was I played in a hockey tournament on that ice. Skated on that ice. On That's that really ice, special. and to me, was still I mean, Look at the long-term effects of American hockey. Right? Some of the players who've come down the line just saying that they were inspired by that. And, right. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to watch the movie again sometime this week. I love that movie. All right.